She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Our message to the organizers and participants of this caravan is simple. As the President and Secretary Nielsen have made clear, we will not allow a large group to enter the United States in an unsafe and unlawful manner. If you can't get asylum, will you consider crossing illegally? Yes. I'm thinking that's, that's, that's no problem for me, for nobody over here, because I want to go there. So 5,000 troops won't stop you, you'll still go? Yes, I want to go over there. Nobody can stop me, and nobody can stop these people. This caravan is not, they're wasting their time. They are not coming What's into the, the country. What's the military going to be able to do? Obama, um, They'll be uh, able Obama to and Bush both sent the National Guard. But it had not no effect. They're not me. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome to the program. Today on the show, we're going to be speaking to Erin Hawley. She's the wife of Josh Hawley, and she's going to come on and talk about her new book, which is called Living Beloved, Lessons for My Little Ones About the Heart of God. And so it's going to be a pleasure to speak with her since I've spoken with her husband. It's going to be really just uh, uh, quite the privilege. Also today on the show, we're going to unpack these comments by Hillary Clinton, who once called people like myself, uh, we need to bring them to heal. That was Those were her comments about blacks in, in inner cities who were plagued by crime and violence and poverty. And now she says we all look alike. Now, she was joking, but mm, I'm just trying to imagine a Republican getting away with a comment like that. We are also going to talk about the issue with the border. And I have my, my thought is pretty simple. Unintended consequences. The leftists and the Venezuelans and the Russians and the Chinese all trying to influence our election, all trying to strike back at Donald Trump for his really masterful negotiations against them on tariffs and trade and uh, free trade agreements. And they are literally reeling from his one-two punches around the globe. He's good at what he does. And so they want to hit him where it hurts, the midterm election. If they can cripple him by getting Congress into the hands of the Democrats, he'll be too busy fighting Americans to fight them. At least that's what they think. But the unintended consequence of this ridiculous action of uh, gathering together 10, 15, some estimates even say well over 15,000 people in numerous caravans all headed north. And they now have buses. They now have charter buses that they've been sent. Um, by well-meaning patsies on the left and the right, you know, funding these things. Now they've caused the president to take the situation so seriously that these individuals, because we don't have the space to house them in any of our detention centers, they'll be housed in tents and they will not be allowed to infiltrate into the interior of the country to await a so-called hearing. These people are going to be in tents waiting on an opportunity to become asylees and 93% of people who apply for asylum are denied. Now, a huge portion of those people are still in the country, even though they've been denied because they never appear for their hearing. So President Trump's not going to give them the opportunity to skip the hearing because they're not going to be allowed to meld into American society and start working off books. It's really actually quite brilliant. And if you remember last week, I said on the show, and I also tweeted it out, my list of things that I felt the president should do. And a couple of those things um, are, are literally line by line exactly what the military is doing now. I said they should take C-130s and drop equipment, that they should set up basically a military command center, in, in other words, a, a forward base of operations to protect the border, that they should shut down all interstate commerce or, you know, both of these nation states, states, uh, interstate commerce between Mexico and the United States. They're not there yet, but that's what the preparations are about. That's what the equipment drops are about. They're going to have four 
uh, Black Hawk helicopter, Black Hawk helicopters down there. Um, they're going to have 5,200 additional troops to supplement the 2,000 plus national boards, national guardsmen that are there. And all of this to process asylum claims and everyone else will be turned away. And the military will be there to ensure that no illegal crossings occur. So it may be the first time in maybe, I don't know, my adult lifetime that the border will actually be secure. And that's an unintended consequence of liberals and George Soros and foreign powers playing games with our country. Our sovereignty is not a joke. And I'm so glad we have a president who recognizes that. So we're going to talk about uh, what the president is doing with the supplemental uh, troops that are going down there. I have some audio for you from Kevin McLean. He's the U.S. Commissioner of Customs and Border Protection. And then another bit of audio from General Terrence O'Shaughnessy, who's the head of the U.S. Northern Command. Uh, but right now, I want to get into the Daily Confession. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. That's Psalm 18 too. Psalm 28, seven says the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart rejoices and I will thank him with my song. So some years ago we had um, we, a, a, our pastor at the church we were attending. He, um, he was talking about a very difficult time in, in the history of, of his marriage with his wife where they had they were expecting their oldest son and when he was born and this was before you know they had so much testing and everything that they would do you know during during the pregnancy they'd have this all this amniocentesis and all that this was kind of before that and when the baby was born he had a number of issues that the doctors were able to see right away and so they took him to intensive care and they began to pray. And, and of course, he was still a pastor back then, but a much smaller church. And he was talking about how they, they prayed and they prayed. And he said he remembered, you know, his wife was still in the hospital for, you know, a couple of days. And he was in the car driving back to their home to, to you know, for the night. And he just began to weep and sob uncontrollably because of what he felt like, you know, that, that their son might not make it. And he was just so overwrought. And he said at, in that moment, he felt the Holy Spirit say, you, you, my word says you can sing a song of praise. You can sing a song of lamentations, sing a song over your boy. And so he did. He sang, you know, obviously it's not your best singing voice if you're, if you're, you know, crying, but he said he sang to the Lord in that parking lot of the hospital and he sang and he sang and he wept and he sang and he just kept on singing. And then when he felt like he just couldn't do anything more, you know, drove home and went to bed for the night. And the next morning he came back to the hospital, you know, visiting his son and his wife. And the doctors came in and said he'd made just a, an amazing turnaround overnight and that they would, of course, have to treat him and, and they were going to still have some maybe, you know, difficult times ahead, but that they felt he'd passed the most difficult portion and that he was going to live. And he shared that with us saying, you know, you got to sing a song over these, these, these issues that you're having, these problems, because God is greater than all of these problems. And when the Lord is described as our rock, our rock, our fortress, what is a fortress? It's an impenetrable place where if you go inside and lock the door, your enemies cannot reach you. That's our God. He is our deliverer. The deliverer is the one who comes in and without a shadow of a doubt gets that innocent verdict for you. The, he banishes your accusers. The deliverer carries you out of the hand of your enemy to safety. That's our God. He's our strength. Strength is something that is, it, it's 
comes and it goes. But if you have strength in an area, it means you've worked in that area and you're strong in that area. And it the inference there is that he has a powerful, unassailable strength that he gives to us when we abide in him. So he's our strength. It says, in whom I will trust. So the decision is yours. Will you trust him? Will you give him your problem? If, if you're angry about the problem right now, it's not that God can't help you there too. Sometimes we feel like, well, I can't, be, I can't be angry in front of the Lord. I'm not talking about being angry at God or railing at God. I'm talking about being angry at the person or the circumstance. And then you go to God with that anger and you say, you know what, Lord, I'm angry. I'm angry here. I'm hurting. I'm angry. And this is what I'm angry about. God wants us to rely on him. He wants us to call him instead of calling a friend or a neighbor. And these are good, good people. So there's nothing wrong with them. But God is the source. We take our problems to him. It says my buckler and the horn of my salvation. The horn of salvation is the loud horn that they blow. And for miles away, people can hear it. Meaning our salvation is something that is widely known and reported. And it is a a sweet fragrance to God that we belong to him and that we have a relationship with him and my high tower in days of old, if you had a high tower, they would put the king and the queen and you know the princesses and all that. They'd put them in the high tower because that was the one place that would be the last to go down in an invasion. It was the safe place. And you could have archers up there who would shoot down the enemy. God is our high tower. He's not a man that he should lie. He's not mocked and he does not, change. He's not in heaven seated on the throne thinking, I'm not a high tower today. You know how we, we, we human beings can get, uh, I don't really feel like, you know, I don't feel like being nice today, or I don't feel like being kind today, or I don't feel like being long suffering today, or I don't feel like talking today. We, we have our feelings and we abide by them much of the time, but God's not like that. He doesn't change. He doesn't shy away from us when we need his saving, delivering, when we need his strength He's always, always there. So daily confession, go to the rock. Tell him about your anger, your sadness, your pain. Let him deliver you. Let him be your shield. Let the glory of the Lord be your rear guard. Let him be your fortress, your high tower. He is the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, and he is for you. Go to him. All right, now I want to turn to this. This is a huge story today. I woke up this morning to audio of the president talking to uh, reporters from Axios about the fact that you don't need an act of Congress or a change to the Constitution to eliminate the so-called birthright citizenship. Now, spoiler alert, you know how much I like Ann Coulter. We've had her on the show twice. I'm hoping to get her back on to talk about this. Uh, But in the meantime, Pretty interesting to see that he is echoing her research and deep dive into what the Constitution and the founders were talking about in the 14th Amendment. It had to do with slaves. Now, full disclosure, on my father's side, I'm directly descended from slaves and proud of it. Happy I am what God made on my mom's side from immigrants. So I got a foot on each side of this and I'm happy to talk about it, but I'm an American an American, meaning that I feel we should protect our citizens first. Now, when he's talking about the birthright executive order and the possibility of one, this is a, an unintended consequence of the caravan and also the intransigence of Congress because we have people on the right and the left who really don't want to see 
um, a, a sealed border. They don't want to see an end to cheap labor. They don't want to, they like the status quo. So here he is in number seven. Now, how ridiculous, we're the only country in the world where a person comes in, has a baby, and the baby is essentially a citizen of the United States for 85 years with all of those benefits. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it has to end. Um, have you talked about that with counsel? Yeah, I have. So where in the process? It's you... in the process. It'll happen. This with year. an executive order. That's what you're talking about, right? Yes, yeah, exactly a very interesting what I'm about. I didn't think anybody but knew that but me. I thought I was the only one. Ah, so he's he's basically expressing some surprise there that this reporter is aware of what the president has been shared of counsel. Now, um, I, I want to shout out to people who are listening to terrestrial radio in, in all of our states, 32 states across the country, um, 800 communities. Thank you so much for being here. Also, shout out to the live streams and people who are listening there. Share the show if you're on Facebook. Share it so people know you're listening and that they'll possibly like the program and uh, do more with it. And one more quick shout out to David McGuire. He said uh, about an hour ago, he was at a busy intersection in his city encouraging black voters with his homemade sign to tune in to Stacey on the Right. Tulsa, Oklahoma. David you're awesome. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, God bless you. That's that's pretty awesome. <laughs> I, I I couldn't even have thought of that up as as a, a advertising. But Tulsa, Oklahomans, hey, what up? And thanks for tuning in. Um, so you heard the president there, and here's how I think it will go. Now remember, I don't proclaim to have a crystal ball. I don't believe in crystal balls, but there are some logical things that we can assume and infer from what the president's discussing here. So first of all, we know that if he writes an executive order that says that, you know, birthright citizenship applies only to children born of two American parents. So no American would be disenfranchised by an executive order worded to mirror what the Constitution's intent was, which was to protect the children of freed slaves from being deported from this country. Since we no longer have slavery, we don't have any living freed slaves and their children are already citizens of this country. There's no danger to any American by the possibility of this executive order. What it does do is it opens up the possibility that some activist judge in the ninth, uh, the loony ninth circuit or, or any other of these liberal leaning circuits would issue a nationwide injunction on the executive order by the president, which would prompt the president's lawyers to go straight to the Supreme Court for them to rule on the constitutionality of circuit court judges in joining the president from actions that are duly given to him under the constitution. The court is now controlled by the conservative majority. In other words, bring it on. We'll be back with Aaron Hawley, wife of Josh Hawley, right after this. Hello, I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. For the last two years, we've just had tremendous response, early response to the announcement that we're going to Israel on a Holy Land tour. We're going March of this year. We go March of every year. Last year, we filled up like early fall, and I expect us to fill up early fall this year as well. So if you're interested in this March 14th through the 22nd tour, and you'll be going with primarily supporters of AFA and AFR, just get the brochure and check it out. You can call us today at 800-FAMILIES, 800-F-A-M-I-L-I-E-S, option 5, and leave us your name and your address, and we'll mail you a brochure. If you simply want to go online, all the information is there. It's at twholyland.com, twholyland.com. If you want to go, 
In March, we're filling up and we're filling up fast. So check it out, twholyland.com. Hi, I'm Crawford LaRitz with a Legacy Moment. I recently heard a young preacher give a wonderful message. At the same time, I was a little bothered by how he said what he said. It kind of reminded me of myself years ago. He drew some conclusions about God and how he works that went beyond what the Bible teaches. It came across as if he had it all figured out, like he had every answer there was about God. In Job chapter 42, verses 2 through 6, on the back end of Job's incredible turmoil, adversity, and suffering, Job comes to grips with his limited knowledge of God. I think there is something for us to learn here. Listen to these words beginning at verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. I want to draw three perspectives from these words. Number one, God is in charge. Job says, I don't understand things. I talk more than I really know, but I acquiesce. I surrender. You're in charge. Number two, we will never know all that there is to know about God, even in heaven. Then thirdly, what we know about God should produce repentance and humility, not arrogance and pride. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Resist the temptation to take pride in what you know about God. The truth of the matter is that we may not know as much as we think we do, and there is so much more to learn. Crawford Loritz is senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. For more information, go to livingalegacy.org, livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the show. Head over to StacyOnTheRight.com and join the thousands of people who are on the newsletter list. Just hit the subscribe button. I never sell the list. The only people who ever see it is actually I don't even see it. It's uh, inside of a little MailChimp database and um, your information is protected and unsubscribing is just as easy as subscribing because the, no- the list is never sold and I make no money off of that. So it's just you and me and the newsletter. Um, and I'd also like to encourage you to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Join the revolution. All right. So it's my pleasure to welcome our next guest. I so enjoyed my interview with her husband, who is Attorney General Josh Hawley, running for the Senate seat here in the state of Missouri. We also asked his opponent, Claire McCaskill, to join us here on the show. And she has refused by simply not replying. But that is not our fault. So we were happy to speak to Josh. And it's my pleasure and honor to get to speak to his wife, Erin. She is an attorney. She's also the author of the new book, Living Beloved, Lessons for My Little Ones About the Heart of God. She's an associate professor of law at the University of Missouri School of Law. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about the book. Why did you write a book about your kids and God and what what brought all this on? Well, really, it was kind of a transition to being uh, an attorney and law professor um, and in that transition um, period, really, uh, I think my sort of go-to method had simply been to work harder. And as the moms and parents of everything know, that doesn't um, sometimes uh, working harder 
um, just, just doesn't quite work. So it was in this sort of transition period um, that the Lord really encouraged and comforted me from, from maybe a, a unique place and not my own kids. And seeing in them sort of the traits that I think Jesus wants to see uh, in us, as you'll recall, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, is actually made up of such as these, and what he's referring to is small children. So if you look at children, you see their infectious joy, you see their just willingness to trust, their desire for relationship uh, with their parents that trumps everything else. And anyhow, in this transition period, God really uh, encouraged and comforted me by, by just looking at my own kids. And so the book um, talks about mothers, young mothers, and their chance to grow their identity as children of God simply by observing their own little ones. And you're encouraging Christian moms to view early motherhood as a wonderful tutoring lesson from God, as a lesson on how to grow closer to him and live beloved as his child. Now, I'm a little further along in the mothering arena than you are, but I remember those days where my kids were teeny tiny and every moment of the day was dedicated to them. And once I got past the initial exhaustion, there were opportunities for me to show them you know, that I'm reading the Bible. Come over. Let's you know look at some verses together mm-hmm. and to have little board books for them that were Christian board books and, and little little tiny Bibles that they could hold on to and carry to church when we would go to church. And I really found a kind of it was like a, a refreshing, like a kind of, almost like a living water experience where I began mm-hmm. to see God differently because I was a mom and I thought I, you know, we all think we know so much we're in yeah. our 20s, but I thought I knew a lot, but I, I was shown through mm-hmm. mothering how little I knew. Um, do you yeah. do you find that women are receptive to what you're sharing in the book and, and how they can use that to kind of, it's it's a growing experience? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, a friend of mine who became a Christian just a few years ago remarked that she probably wouldn't have become a Christian um, without having first become a mom, because I think as moms, we have this sort of, it's an imperfect, but it's a, a modeling of the Father's love for us and how we just adore our children because they are and because they're ours, not because they do anything. Um, and these sorts of, uh, that unconditional love that we feel for them is, I think, a mirror of what the Father God feels for us. Um, in addition to sort of the refreshments that, that we get from them, as you say, I think my favorite actually translation or, or loose translation of the Bible is actually the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it's written for children, but it's just a wonderful version. Um, and as I read to them like you did, it's, it's refreshing because you see it through their eyes. And it really does just take a childlike faith um, in God and in Jesus. And they remind us of that. Mm, it does. So what are you hoping to, because I know sometimes the the offshoot of, of writing a book is that obviously you're going to come into contact with a lot of people who are going to encounter the book, and then they, they're going to encounter you and realize, oh, you know, your husband's in politics, but this book is about Christianity, and really it, it goes to the heart of any person. Um, how have you been navigating that kind of, it's a little bit of a dichotomy when, you know, you're, you're in the political realm, but you've written this book that's not a political book. Sure. So, so the book itself is, yeah, you say absolutely apolitical. It's about um, Christianity, it's about one's faith and being a mom and, and nothing to do with politics. Um, but I am blessed by a husband who uh, has a deep faith himself. And so that's something we share and can hopefully instill and pray uh, that our children accept Jesus and those sorts of things. So, so it's, on the one hand, it's very different um, than politics, maybe, especially today. Uh, but on the other hand, it's very consistent with our family. Um, so, we're, yeah, we're hoping to, to stay that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's pretty exciting because, um, 
you know, the outcome of the election could radically change your experience um, because you're, you know, there's it's one thing to be attorney general of the state of Missouri. And that's a very, very uh, consequential, consequential position. And I think that your husband has been doing some amazing work on behalf of Missourians from the attorney general's office. Um, but it, should he attain the Senate seat, there will be a lot of people who will be looking to see, OK, Josh Hawley, who is he? Aaron Hawley, who is she? And this book goes a long way in kind of laying out who you are as a Christian, as opposed to the wife of a politician and a you know university professor and attorney. It's a really interesting time to have the book come out and, and kind of in the fray of all of this other really momentous activity. Yeah, and I really just have to think it's God's timing in that and hopefully grounding them in faith and, and maybe let people see a side of our family that... It is different from politics, and yet just as important. Um, and sort of the, the cornerstone being being faith to, to any Christian family, and uh, I hope that that will come through, um, and maybe be an opportunity to to be positive. Mm-hmm. I think it will. I, you know, God's word does not go out and return void. It always mm, accomplishes yes. its purposes. And a book like this, I think, will be really it'll be a bomb to the soul of many a young mom. Um, especially young moms who might stumble, stumble upon it and maybe they're not Christians uh, or maybe their, their, their household isn't yet Christian and they can learn a lot from what you've written here. Uh, very exciting. And thank you so much for joining the show today to talk about the book and good luck with everything uh, with your family and with your husband. Wonderful to visit. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Erin. Uh, that's Erin Hawley. She is the wife of Josh Hawley, Attorney General of the State of Missouri, and she's an associate professor of law at the University of Missouri School of Law. She's also written this wonderful book, author. Uh, she's an author. It's The Living Beloved, Lessons from My Little Ones About the Heart of God. I will have the link to the page on Amazon where you can buy it. I will throw that onto uh, the streams that are going right now on Facebook and uh, everywhere else. So if you'd like to, you can partake of that. It sounds like a fantastic gift for a young mom, a new mom, someone who's expecting. This would be a great gift to put in their stocking for Christmas. So um, I posted that there and you guys can take a look at that. So I want to turn back to, because we have a little bit of time left in this segment. And I think, you know, if someone listened to this show and they're pro immigration at all costs or pro DACA, they might think, well, she's just against immigration, period. She's just against it. And that might be something that you might think, but that's absolutely not true. And I know a lot of times I've criticized people for saying we should do things the way Europe does things. I don't believe in looking at other countries and saying that's a blanket policy that would work here. European nations are individually the size of our smaller states. Population-wise, they're larger than our smaller states, but Landmass-wise, they're, they're, they're tiny places, and they're also European, meaning they've had monarchies. We've never had one. So th- there's, there's not a lot of correlation between what an American would think and accept from their government and what a German or a Frenchman or uh, you know, an Italian would accept from their government. And if you don't believe me, you got to get out of the country. you got to get out of America and go to one of these places, Spain, Italy, France, Germany, Great Britain. You will notice immediately the difference in the people there. Does it mean they're not excellent or they're not wonderful people? Of course not. I grew up in Germany. I've been to England. I've been to France and the Netherlands. I've been to Russia back when it was the USSR. I've been to Saudi Arabia. I've been all over the globe and especially all over Europe, Austria, um, France four times, Spain four times. I mean, I've been to these places. 
And there's nothing if there's nothing better than going to one of these European countries and experiencing their culture, Switzerland. I mean, it's just it's so different. But it doesn't mean that if you go there and they have light rail over the entire country, that we should bring light rail to the entirety of our country. Now, one area where I don't see a lot of liberals saying that we should be like European nations is the fact that we allow people to use tourism, come here six weeks before they're due to have their baby, the very last moment they can fly without having a doctor's note. They fly to the United States and stay in a posh hotel. They shop. They get to know the American city they're living in. And then they have their baby and they get a birth certificate from the hospital that shows that their child was born here. And then they stay a little while longer, make sure their baby, they and their baby are well enough to travel. And then they go back to China. It's, birth tourism is huge in China because wealthy Chinese women want to have the option of sending their kids to American universities when their kids graduate from high school. Some of them even bring them back for high school. And they're taught English and Mandarin simultaneously. So when they come back, they can speak English. And they want that American experience because the creative engine of our public education system is not matched in China in any way, not in their private schools, none none of it, none of it even compares. And so you have around 50,000 Chinese women a year who give birth in America and those children are considered Americans. But how so? The 14th Amendment doesn't provide for any foreigner to come here and have a baby and have that baby be an American. It provides for the children of freed slaves to be Americans if they're born in this country, which they would be because their parents were slaves. And this is before air travel. So you didn't have people flying all over the country. Traveling outside of the country was a thing that only the very wealthy and well-connected would ever do. So that's that's the basis here. The other thing that's interesting is when you look at law in, uh, let's say, south of the border where all these people are coming from. In Mexico, you cannot simply, as an American, travel to Mexico and have a baby in a Mexican hospital or on the sidewalk somewhere and have that baby be a Mexican. According to Mexican law, a child born in Mexico is the nationality of its parents. So if you're an American, your child is an American. Isn't that kind of logical? So the issue here is not that President Trump is trying to end birthright citizenship for Americans. He plans to end the faux application of a law that was meant to help freed slaves and their children to remain in America. His plan plan is to eliminate the complete and utter, it's like the, the law has been turned inside out and used to give citizenship to millions of people who would not otherwise have been considered Americans. The other way that we know that this is not a commonality is if you look at the children of military, active duty military members. Active duty military and their families often have their children abroad. My sister was born in Panama. She received dual citizenship from Panama and the United States at her birth. And at 18, the U.S. government required her to renounce one and accept the other. There was no, it wasn't like she got a brochure about this, America is so awesome, pick us. It was you need to apply for a social security card. This is before they start issuing them around. Basically, it's mandatory within the 12, first 12 months after the birth of your baby now. But back then, you had to have one by the time you were 18. By the time this occurred, we were already living in Germany. And she'd been born in Panama. So she received a document from the U.S. government. And it had her social security card application. And it had a renunciation. And all she had to do was check the box and sign it in front of a witness. And she chose to be an American citizen, uh, an American citizen, and basically checked the box renouncing her citizenship in uh, Panama, and that was it. Now, but that's Panama. 
most countries, including all European nations, I can't go there and have a baby and have my baby be French. My baby would still be an American. The same with diplomats who travel to this country or live in this country and their wives get pregnant and have babies. Those babies do not have American citizenship. They don't have dual citizenship. They're the citizens of their their parents' nationality. And so that is what the president is trying to do here. So on the media right now, you hear them saying, well, last week he said he was a nationalist and this week he wants to take away birthright citizenship. Don't listen to that. So you know that people who are proponents of the current system, the current broken system where our laws are not followed, people do not follow our laws. And actually, when you speak to foreigners who want to be citizens of the United States, one of the things that they talk about the ones who aren't coming here because they want to take part in the American dream, the ones who are coming here and overstaying visas, the ones who are coming here illegally, they talk about how easy it is to get public assistance in America and how we have this huge welfare state. Do you think we'd have to borrow 40 cents on every dollar if we weren't importing citizens from countries that they're sending us people who they're indigent, they need expensive cancer treatments, they need all this stuff that they can only get in America? If we were getting engineers, lawyers, doctors, which we do get some of those, but if the majority of our immigrants were of that professional class, do you think our welfare state would be so outsized that we'd have to borrow as much money as we do to support it? And that's the question here. So as Christians, we have to want to abide by the law. And we just have one minute left. Let's go to the phones. Jacob in Alabama. Hey, Jacob, we have about a minute left. What's your comment? Yeah, how are you? Good. How are you? It's been a long time, but uh, I've been listening. Um, but uh, you, you bring up some great points, and um, try the immigration situation concerned. Um, they had a plan, you know, to come into the country and um, and get that uh, catch and release situation, and uh, and never come never come back. And that's that's the whole situation. Is they that has to be stopped? And I'm mm-hmm. I've been praying, and I'm I'm thankful that um, President. Trump is taking care of that situation. Did that catch and release doesn't make any sense? And um, and they get another caravan waiting to come. And, and this is this is the whole plan. So mm-hmm. thankful that you're, you're speaking about it. And you've got to be militant about mm-hmm. this because this is literally an invasion. It is. You know? It really is. And Jacob, you hit the nail on the head. It's an invasion. No other country would allow it. We shouldn't allow it. Thank you so much for calling the show. I also want to point out that the incubation time for communicable diseases is longer than 20 days. So children who are held for 20 days and then released into the country, possibly carrying diseases that we've already eradicated that we no longer vaccinate for, just one more danger and reason why we should put a stop to this. We'll be right back. What does it take to live an uncommon life? Here's former Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. Joe Green, one of my teammates on the Pittsburgh Steelers, once told me about the time he was ready to quit. The team had been losing, so one day in 1972, he cleaned out his locker and headed for the airport. One of the Steeler coaches eventually persuaded him to return, but his story illustrates one of the challenges of leadership keeping everyone on the team focused and committed to the mission through thick and thin. Whether with our personal goals or as leaders of others, we must always keep the vision out front and readily accessible. It's easy to forget sometimes why we do what we do, but keeping our eyes on the prize can keep us going. 
Tony Dungy. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. Abraham Hamilton III. God put us in this world at this time to be salt and light. We don't fold because of the darkness that we're facing. This is not the first time in the world's history that it's gotten dark. God has called you and I to be his ambassadors, even in this dark moment. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. Please call your senators today. It's time to put an end to the liberals' filibuster. Tell your senators to switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood now. Call the Capitol switchboard at 202-224-3121 or go to afaaction.net. Again, call 202-224-3121 and tell your senators to switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood. Your call will make a difference. From America's election headquarters. The candidates in the Missouri Senate race making their final arguments. Incumbent Democrat Claire McCaskill facing a Republican challenge from the state's attorney general, Josh Hawley. They debated last week on KMBC-TV, McCaskill stressing her focus on key issues. Your wages, health insurance, prescription drug coverage, veterans benefits, border security. Hawley pointing out their differences. She's a liberal Democrat who has opposed the president at every turn, opposed the agenda that the people of this state voted for. Both promised a compromise. I work with my Republican colleagues. I'm willing to work across party lines with anybody to stand up to my party when they are wrong. But McCaskill complained. He lies about my record. While Hawley said his priority would be fighting for the values of Missouri. President Trump won Missouri by 20 points in 2016. Polls show the Senate race is one of the closest in the country. Joy Piazza, Fox News. You can download episodes of Stacy of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. In terms of our preparations at the border, yesterday we launched, launched Operation Secure Line, a multi-phased and flexible operational response designed to ensure that we are prepared for any number of contingencies involved with the arrival and attempted crossing of a large group of intending migrants at our border, whether they attempt to cross at a port of entry or unlawfully in between ports of entry. An important principle here is that border security is a law enforcement mission. And as the Unified Border Security Agency of the United States, CBP is well equipped along with support from interagency federal, state and local partners uh, to manage multiple contingencies of varying size. Since we initiated our planning two weeks ago, we have completed updated assessments of each of our 26 crossing points on the southwest border and already deployed 100 specially trained special response team operators to prepare plans for each location. As information on the approach of a large group at a port of entry is available, we have at the ready 1,000 CBP officers, including 250 tactical enforcement officers and mobile response team professionals with training on managing contingencies, including riot control. Between ports of entry, we have an additional 830 Border Patrol agents on standby ready to deploy to include 140 special operations agents, 385 mobile response team agents, and an additional 350 agents from unaffected sectors. 
These agents will be augmented and supported by over two dozen CBP air assets for surveillance and mobile response, including four Blackhawks, six additional helicopters, as well as multiple fixed-wing assets and unmanned aerial systems. Mm. Does that sound like they're playing around to you? Nor to me. I'm excited to hear that they're planning on taking our national sovereignty seriously. And this is what I tweeted out. I just want to give it to you real quick before we go back to the phones. Um, I would, if it were me and I were in charge, you know, um, and that's certainly a stretch of the imagination. But I thought about what what do we see going on at the southern border? What do we see as the impending danger of this new uh, caravan coming up and the caravans behind it? I would seal the border for 90 days, stop all remittances from here to Mexico, stop the new trade deal from going through, station 10,000 armed National Guardsmen on the southern border. I would end, not suspend, all U.S. aid to the entire South American continent, and then I would build a military base there. You don't need congressional authorization to build a military base. I know this because we stand down military bases all over the country under base realignment and closure. It's a regular operational function of the Department of Defense and also building new bases. You don't need congressional authorization. So that's what, that, that's what I would do to start, to start. Let's go to the phones. Paul in California, thank you so much for calling the show. Uh, good to talk to you. Hi, Stacey. Big fan. Thank you for taking my call. Hi, thanks for calling. So, um... My comment is, and I wondered if you, if you thought about this, but the, uh, the Texas border uh, with Mexico is uh, bordered by a river, the Rio Grande. There's no wall anywhere along that border, and it's a big uh, border. So, I mean, I know these people, and, I, and you know, they, they're not going to just go away if we tell them to go home. Uh, I think they'll wait it out. Is there a plan on a time frame as far as our military being there, how long will we be there on that board? I don't think so. But again, so I thank you for calling. I'll, I'll let you hang up so um, you can hear the answer. And so I actually had a discussion about this with a military veteran who used to deploy um, dropping um, their mobile command centers for AWACS helicopters. And this was, you know, obviously 20 some odd years ago, but someone who's pretty familiar with forward operations and he said that they would have orders to go in and drop these mobile command centers and set them up, run the cables between them and set up the, the command center. And they would get the orders to go um, sometimes four days before, sometimes a couple of weeks before. And then within 48 hours, the mobile command center would have to be operational. And they would set it up and get it operational. And then at the closeout, when it needed to be removed, it was the same thing. They would get the notification and they could shut it down in less than 24 hours and get it out of there. So this is a much larger operation because the um, landmass that is being discussed here, especially as the caller just mentioned on the border there um, in, in Texas where there's a river and there's, you know, kind of craggy, rocky, almost mountainous regions as well, um, it's going to require monitoring. And that's where the Black Hawk heli helicopters come in. They're going to be monitoring the areas where they can't stand up physical barriers, but they can station troops within, you know, viewing distance of these areas that are easily crossed by humans on foot, but not easily sealed up, those areas can be monitored and patrolled by people on foot, people in, uh, you know, all-terrain vehicles, Humvees, etc. Um, the other thing that I think it's important to note is 
So the U.S. military is actually not very good. Uh, while they can stand up and stand down forward operating bases uh, at, at the drop of a hat, the U.S. military is not known for going into an area and setting up a whole bunch of equipment and then leaving. Look all over the country. Look all over the globe where we have bases. You'll usually, if you go back to the historical insertion point, you'll find that they said, oh, we'll have this base here for two years max, four years max, five years max. Sometimes they'll say this is some, a project that has a 10-year operating window, and then after that, we're going to extract. Usually, decades later, those bases are still there and operational. Now, there is one caveat to that, which is that this is a, a proposed base or military operation on American soil, but we're talking about an area of the country that up until now has been largely unregulated. Remember I read the story here on the air a few months ago of a woman who spent months living among the ranchers at the southern border and learned how many of them had been broken into and robbed at gunpoint in their own homes. Some of them had been forced to take their trucks and load them up with illegal aliens and drive them over a mountainous region so they could meet up with drug mules and they were carrying drugs. And these people were told, if you if you tell anybody, we'll come back and we'll kill you. We're a part of a multinational drug in, 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 operation. And we have we have gang members on this side of the border as well. And we'll snuff you out if you say anything. And elderly people who owned ranches and used to be very active, who they just sleep with their doors locked and their gun by their bed. And every time they come home, they've been broken into. Their refrigerator's been emptied out. People will sit in their kitchen and eat their food while they're not home and then leave a huge mess for them illegal aliens traversing their property. We're talking about a problem that has been unaddressed and has allowed to, it's been allowed to fester to the degree that Americans aren't safe in their own homes. And I, I can tell you, I, I am not the biggest cheerleader of President Trump, but I know a winner when I see one. And when I say a winner, the president isn't perfect and he's not a winner on every single issue. But on immigration, He's he and I are this close. There's no there's no space between us. And it's not because he's a nationalist or he's a racist or he's, you know, anti-Semitic. All of these are lies from the pit of hell that have been hurled at him because he wants to stop some people from making money on the backs of Americans who are being kidnapped and killed and raped. Remember, I'll never get tired of reminding you of what illegal aliens are doing in this country in the year 2017, fiscal year 2017. ICE reported illegal aliens committed more than 76,000 drug offenses, 48,000 assaults, 11,000 weapons offenses, 5,000 sexual assaults, 2,000 kidnappings, and more than 1,800 homicides. This is on my Twitter feed. You can scroll right through and retweet it if you want to. You can also screen grab it and share it with friends. This is what's happening in our country. 2,000 kidnappings? Imagine what those families have been through. 1,800 homicides, that's 1,800 Americans who don't get to live out the rest of their life in pursuit of happiness because some illegal alien decided it was their time to go. Assaults, drug offenses, weapons offenses, 5,000 rapes, 5,000 women and children raped that didn't have to be. So I'm perfectly fine with lawful immigration. I think it should be merit-based, as the president has outlined, and there's no reason for Americans to have to suffer these horrible consequences of our southern border being wide open. And so I'm so glad to hear also this description from General Terrence O'Shaughnessy. 
He's the head of the U.S. Northern Command. So um, if you're not as, as familiar with the military, the U.S. Northern Command simply covers North America. It's our all of our armed forces under the, the Department of Defense. And this general, General Terrence O'Shaughnessy, heads up that branch of our military management, if you will. So again, we don't need Congress to tell us if we can fly C-130s down and drop, you know, uh, Humvees all over the place or stand up tent cities and, you know, set up infrastructure and porta potties. We don't need permission from Congress to do any of this. It's already authorized under the military. And the commander in chief of the United States military is Donald J. Trump, the president of the United States. So the unintended consequence, again, is that we're going to actually get something done on the border because the liberals are trying to bust down our southern border and we just can't have that. So let's listen to General O'Shaughnessy here in number six. Due to the large size of the potential caravans that may arrive at the border, however, the Department of Homeland Security has further requested the support of the Department of Defense. This is in addition to the 2,000 National Guard personnel already augmenting operations under Operation Guardian Support and making an impact in border security, supporting apprehensions and drug seizures since last year. Specifically, CBP has requested that DOD provide support in several key areas significant air and ground transportation and logistics support to move CBP personnel and equipment to locations of operational focus, engineering capabilities and equipment to help ensure our ability to secure our legal crossings and key areas of the border, medical support units, mobile housing for sustaining CBP deployed personnel, and extensive planning support. I will turn it over to General O'Shaughnessy to detail DOD's robust response to our request for support in just a moment. But let me close by saying, that regardless of the operational contingencies we face, along with its interagency partners and unprecedented support from DOD, CBP will ensure border security. We will not allow a large group to enter the U.S. unlawfully. We will maintain lawful trade and travel to the greatest extent possible. We will act in accordance with the highest principles of law enforcement. We will treat intending migrants humanely and professionally at all times, and the safety of CBP personnel especially our law enforcement personnel on the front lines, as well as the traveling public will remain paramount. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, I told you that that was General Terrence O'Shaughnessy. I listened to, to the entire press conference yesterday. Um, it was live during the program, so I watched the live stream of it after the show. And there was some audio from General Terrence O'Shaughnessy. We didn't get that. What we got was two bits from Kevin McLean, U.S. Commissioner of Customs and Border Protection. Now, I can tell you what um, the general discussed when it was his turn to talk, and that was more of the deployment side of the efforts and how they were going to use um, so the portable barriers and different mechanisms and that some of the people who would be going down have been trained in riot control. And so they're going to be there and they're going to know what to do when the migrant horde arrives at the first wave, second wave, third wave, and how to control the groups of individuals so that women and children aren't harmed, but people who are violent will be apprehended. And obviously anyone who's violent at the border is not going to be eligible for asylum. The other thing that was pointed out by General Terrence O'Shaughnessy is that the first natural place that you arrive at as a migrant that offers you assistance is where your refugee or asylum status ends if you refuse that assistance. So any migrant who has refused assistance, and that's the entire caravan, they've refused assistance from the country of Mexico, they've proven that there are not asylum candidates. 
it's a pretty interesting thing when you look at the law, when you look at the rule, what the rules are and you apply them without regard to political factions or ideology, you suddenly become patently aware that these people aren't actually traveling because they're afraid or because they, they don't have anywhere else to go or they need opportunity, they need jobs because they could find all of that in Mexico. They want to come to America because we have a huge welfare state and they're going to be able to come here and get benefits and live the high life that we've worked so hard to create for our own citizens. And they're not willing to come in through the normal ports of entry, through the regular asylum process or through the regular immigration process that we provided that allows one million individuals to enter our country on a yearly basis. We're more than generous since our population is only 300 plus million. 320 million, including the illegal immigrants. Come on. How many more people a year are we supposed to take in? Ann Coulter's comment from a couple days ago is perfect. We uh, just, just allow all of the invading hordes to come on in and set up shop if you want to turn America into Tijuana. Look at California. Look at it. Huge portions of California where they don't even speak English anymore. And it looks just like south of the border there with people selling fruit on the side of the road, not on stands. They're selling on the side of the road, living there, migrant people selling fruit out of the back of trucks. So they live in the truck. I mean, it's it's just potholes, dirt roads, uh, paving that's gone bad and has never been repaired. This is what California is turning into. That's not what they put on the tourism commercials, obviously. But California is an example of what the rest of this country could look like if we allow our border to be completely obliterated. This has zero to do with uh, being afraid of Mexican xenophobia, any kind of hatred. Nationalism just means America first. It doesn't mean racism of any kind. If it, if it was, had anything to do with racism, I would never, ever be a part of it. Um, but I prefer to categorize myself by my positioning in the kingdom. Child of the king. Wife to my husband, mother to the children, and then, you know, radio host and a bunch of other cool stuff. Not black, not American. Yeah, those those things are true, but they're not my primary identifiers. Good evening from the heartland. You have oneamericanewsnow.com up next. 